0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So here we are, uh, 24 hours since we started. <clears throat> and you made it through the first day. <clears throat> you signed up for an Awakening Joy retreat, and maybe some of you, if this is the first time you're doing this, is saying, "Okay, so where's the joy?" Um, maybe some but some of you have touched. Hopefully, you've touched some moments of of well being since you've been here. But the first day is um, usually a challenge for most people. Um, take a little weather report uh, how many people uh, were sleepy today okay how about restless okay sometimes it's you're sleepy and then there's a restless and then you're sleepy and going back and forth how about uh, aches in the body okay busy mind you're just doing fine here right right on schedule The first day of any retreat uh, for most people is a settling in period. It's a kind of detox from stimulation and the busyness of our life. Uh, And so there is naturally a a kind of adjustment with those four experiences being so common. And what gets easier as you do do this more and more, is you know that that's just part of the package. So you're not frustrating yourself or thinking, "What am I doing wrong?" This is just part of it. <clears throat> and one added little challenge with a retreat with this theme is um, you might have some kind of idea or. Uh, imagining of what it would be like to practice a retreat filled with joy. Um, So I I just again want to remind you, uh, I I think it bears repeating, that um, you just let the process unfold on its own. You show up and um, we all have a lot of trust and faith in this process and probably those who've done it a few times know that there's something to this. And um, you don't have to make it happen. You don't have to make your experience happen or try to create any any particular um, idea or uh, have any agenda. You just show up. And it seems mindfulness itself and this practice itself seems to unfold so that you are... Uh, naturally uncovering the things that keep you um, disconnected from your natural well-being. This is, uh, I think about it, I'll remind you who you really are. This is a, a picture of um, Chloe Thomas, from Melbourne, Australia, who was born eight weeks premature. This picture was taken when she had not yet reached uh, nine months after conception. But uh, it's such a beautiful picture. This is your natural state. Meet Chloe. Do you remember? (laughs) Or maybe, well, that wasn't me. But this is who we are, when we're fed and our diapers are changed and we get enough love and support, this is our true nature just coming out. And you might think, well, that's okay for a baby, but um, but then we grow older and get socialized and all of those things that Jane was mentioning uh, today. Uh, Getting in the way, but actually when an adult is put in an fMRI machine and They are not having any uh, physical pain or stress Two big things right there. I grant you the natural expression of uh, of that brain on the uh, fMRI they are um, Conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. So this process is one of uncovering what's here all along. When we took refuge in the Buddha uh, yesterday, what that really means is taking refuge and um, uh, comfort and inspiration in the fact that the Buddha or Kuan Yin is right inside. It's, that's why the Buddha taught. He said, you can experience what I've experienced. All that's needed is to um, see through what is obscuring your natural state. Mm. But there are things that get in the way, either habit patterns that have been practiced over time or beliefs that say, oh, it's not okay for me to really uh, be happy or I'm a little suspicious about this happiness stuff. Um, I mentioned this in, uh, in a group today. Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? It's so deeply ingrained in us, or doesn't want well-being, if that word happiness trips you up. And even those who that's not a, a natural response, oh yes, I want to be happy. The ones that might tend to grumpiness, who are holding back your hand if I asked for a show of hands of who wants to be anybody that doesn't want to be happy. And somebody might be saying, yeah, I like being grumpy. That's just your way of being happy. Whatever turns you on, but whatever you do, and if don't take my word for this, look at it for yourself. Whatever you do generally is motivated by the idea that this will either make me feel better or will uh, lessen my pain, even though it might be misguided, we do all kinds of crazy things because we don't understand where true happiness lies. And it's thinking, oh, well, I'll do this. This will make me feel better for a little while. And then, oh, what was I thinking? That didn't quite do it. But if you track your uh, motivation behind your actions, and I, I would encourage you to do this while you're here, just notice what motivates you to do what you do. And you will probably find that there is something in you that is saying, this will feel better. And what we're doing is accessing that very deep, intrinsic source of our actions that is really rooting for us. Even if it gets misguided, it's really rooting for us and discovering where true well-being lies. And going for that. Now there might be all kinds of, as I said, beliefs or ideas that get in the way, and part of the process is seeing with great compassion, as Jane was sharing this afternoon, great compassion for all the habits and patterns or ways that we get caught or we get lost, and holding them with great tenderness and great kindness. (coughs) Sometimes something that gets in the way is the, um, the real concern and caring for the world. And feeling, how can I be happy when there's so much suffering in the world? Anybody have that thought ever? Yeah, and it's understandable. And it's really coming from, one could say, a wholesome place of true caring, of deep caring. And so there's something noble that one could actually even appreciate about that thought. But that is um, perhaps not the wisest, deepest understanding of cultivating happiness. And for those, I wanted to just address that as we as we uh, start this process, or relatively early in this process, um... This thought that keeps us, one of the thoughts that sabotages our own um, right to well-being. This is from um, an essay by Howard Zinn, who wrote um, a very important book, The People's History of the United States. Not the whitewashed history, but the real history with no um, uh, no pulling punches as far as our, um, our misguided actions as well as our, our, um, our noble actions. And this is from a, an essay that he wrote called The Optimism of Uncertainty. Howard Zinn, by the way, who died a few years ago, he's John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law. So there is that uh, connection of wisdom. What's that? And Will's, Will's, yeah, and Will Cabot zinns uh, grandfather. So here's what Howard Zinn says. An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic, It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So your pessimism or cynicism or holding back, oh, how can I let myself feel well-being when there's so much suffering. All that's doing is adding a bit more despair and discouragement to the world. But we get inspired by those who somehow let their goodness and their love shine through, and it reminds us of those places right inside. So I see awakening joy or getting in touch with your true goodness is one of the most uh, beneficial acts you can do for the world because it reminds others of their joy and goodness and love there might be a number of other beliefs that that we carry as well as that that thought oh i'm not deserving Oh, if I'm feeling really good, maybe others will be jealous, or uh, dare I uh, show my joy? Um, Lots of different patterns. What I wanted to talk um, about tonight, the first part of the talk, is the very first wholesome state, what I've Put as this the key wholesome state that sets this whole process in the right direction, which is right out of the Buddha's teaching as well. And that is wise intention. If you've gone through the the gate and you've you've seen uh, the the um, the prayer wheel and there's the eightfold path links on that wheel. And you see the, the second one is wise intention. And the Buddha said that intention is the key to creating or having an input in creating our reality. Once you see where happiness lies, which is one way of, t- of saying wise understanding or wise view, then the next step is having the intention to go for true well-being. And that wise intention, which in classical uh, Buddhist uh, teaching includes um, developing thoughts of compassion, thoughts of simplicity, and thoughts of loving-kindness, that decision sets the whole wheel in motion. And tonight, I specifically wanted to talk about this in terms of the intention to be happy. Now, I just said a moment ago, and I think most of you agreed, that deep in there, we we do want happiness for ourselves. But to consciously decide for ourselves, this is... Um, a very uh, important, essential step. Because until you make that decision, you're leaving it up to your habits of mind. And generally, greed, hatred, and delusion, or grasping, aversion, and ignorance, have very um, potent sway over our actions and what we're developing in our our thought patterns and beliefs. So it takes a conscious intention. What the Buddha talked of as inclining the mind. Sometimes people think of intention and they hear, oh, that means having a goal. And I'm all in favor of having goals and being inspired by, um, by particular outcomes but you can't be too uh, attached to the goal because then you're just looking and seeing, am I there yet? Is the, uh, am I passing or failing my test? And so intention is more about inclining the mind that is just m- opening to a particular possibility and doing what we can to help bring that about. <clears throat> this decision is perhaps the most important decision you can make, especially in terms of, of this practice, but also in your, in your life. When you decided to come on this retreat, something in you has called you. Something in you has called you to keep on developing, no matter how much doubt or fear or judgment you might have. There's something strong that's calling you, and for you to actually give it conscious energy um, deepens the whole process. I wanted to share with you uh, a story um, from a, a, a book that I I love and. Uh, like to uh, uh, recommend to people. The book is called How We Choose to Be Happy by um, a couple of uh, friends who've come to the the Joy Course a number of times, uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. And uh, in this uh, book, they went for about uh, three years on a research study, finding certifiably happy people. And they found about 320 of them over a three-year period. And they go to a, a, a town, and they traveled all over the U.S. or and in Europe and, and Canada. And uh, they'd go to a town and say, um, "Who's the happiest person around here?" They'd go to a diner, say a, a local gathering place, and people might say, uh, "Oh, Harriet, she's she's pretty happy." You yeah. know. Then they'd go to Harriet and say are you happy yeah I'm pretty happy and then they'd say well can we speak to people that might not that might know other sides of you like your co-workers or your relatives and sure and then when they it seemed like everybody agreed Harriet's pretty happy they'd say why are you so happy and they distilled nine different common uh, themes that these these people exhibited uh, a number of which are these are, are um, the the uh, awakening joy, wholesome states, not all of them, but but many of them. Um, and one of them um, was the intention to be happy. And you might think with these these um, certifiably happy people that um, they just were either born that way or had a really good life. But that's not so, actually. Many of them, the most inspiring stories, were uh, those who somehow made this decision at one point to go incline the mind that way. And this is Adele's story. <clears throat> she says, In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. It was the Oakland Fire, 1991. Leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. It's almost overwhelming. I had nothing, she said. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go, and then I should let my life go, too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And Rick and Greg say, when you're with her, she just lights up a room. It's not put on. It took her a while to get there. It wasn't like all of a sudden she decided, okay, and now I'm happy. She, and they said, and they they write about it in the book, she went through a few years of real grieving, determined not to numb herself and to process all the pain that she was going through, but with that intention to come out the other side and learn from it and truly create a happy life. The book is filled with stories like this, and we probably all know people who have had incredibly um, challenging pasts and somehow are these beacons of light. How does that happen? At some point, there is the decision to go for it. And I'd like us, while we're here on this journey together, to get in touch with our own decision, to see if you can connect with your own heartfelt intention to go for true well-being. And you might... Notice all the things that get in the way. That's okay. Don't feel discouraged. I, I, myself, as I I sometimes say, I was drawn to this practice out of deep internal pain. I was suffering, and when when I heard my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, first say, it's actually possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts, that had never occurred to me as a possibility before, but there was something in the way he said it. I can remember just the room I was sitting in and this to this day, and just saying, there was something in the way he said it and that he wasn't so different from me. I remember saying, I'm going for it. I didn't know how I was gonna get there, but he gave me enough faith and inspiration say, I'm going for it. So if you have a lot of pain or suffering in your life, don't think there's not hope for you. Actually, you can be more motivated than others to really uh, turn your suffering into compassion and joy. So uh, I'd like you to just for a moment um, go inside And suppose you became increasingly in touch with your genuine, heartfelt, wholesome place that was rooting for your own well-being and more and more supported that intention with the wisest, practices, and commitment so that you saw all the goodness in your life more and more and it became the context to hold all the challenges. Just imagine wherever you are now, and you might be in a pretty happy place, that you continue to develop those capacities, what it might look like or feel like a year from now, two or three years from now, as it became more and more your default setting, not obscured by old patterns. So imagine what it might feel like inside, and what it might feel like to those who know you, and what your life might be like and if this seems like a worthwhile project endeavor see if you can get in touch with the heartfelt decision to do your part to help bring that up, bring that about You don't have to figure out how to get there. Just deciding, I want to go for it. And if there are any particular words that inspire you, may I be happy. May I feel all the goodness inside and share my love well. Or whatever words come to you. Just get in touch with them. There's power in that decision. Stay connected with it. Okay, if you like you can open your eyes. That's what sets the whole process in motion. And even if you forget, or you have doubts, stay reconnected to what you just got in touch with, if you could get in touch with it. And there might be times that you say, Oh, who was I fooling? You know, I'll I'll never... Don't let those doubts take over. Intention is a kind of interesting thing. If you're waiting for a 100% pure intention, yeah, I'm going for it, and you've got that confidence. Um, and if there's some niggling doubts or old patterns that say, hey, you know, we know who you really are, who are you trying to kid? If you start focusing on the doubts, then... All of that good energy is withered away. So here's something about intention that I find helpful. There can be mixed intentions. Maybe there's an intention, a noble intention, to go for well-being, but there's a part of you that wants to be recognized as somebody who's really got the secret or whatever. And you say, oh, what a phony I am. This is all ego. If you just focus on the less-than-wholesome intention, then that becomes dominant. So, if it's a 90% wholesome intention and 10% unwholesome, don't worry about the 10%. Don't be preoccupied with it. Just focus on the 90. And if it's 50-50, focus on the 50. And if it's 10-90, Focus on the 10, because what you will give energy to, you will um, uh, increase. Now, besides the intention for your own personal well-being, we can widen our intention. And that is include not only our own well-being, but seeing it, as I said earlier, as a gift that others benefit from, our own well-being. And when we can have that wider intention, it definitely gives some uh, deeper inspiration to our, uh, our commitment. In the teachings, there's this, um, this notion of Having a clear comprehension of purpose, where when you get clear on some inspiring vision that holds your practice, then it kind of it it can be a container for all the times that you slip up. So to have that as a as a context within which to practice is, uh, it brings a tremendous power and energy. A number of years ago, I um, was traveling, uh, I was invited to a conference uh, in, in India uh, with a number of Western uh, Dharma teachers and uh, uh, being with the, uh, the Dalai Lama. I was really excited, it was such, a, such an honor. And I was uh, telling a friend, a colleague, about it. And um, she asked me, oh, what's your itinerary? And I happen to say, oh, I'm, I'm flying to uh, have a stopover in Frankfurt and then going to Delhi and then up to Dharamsala. And she said, oh, Frankfurt? Oh, you should uh, visit Mother Mira, who is this Indian uh, uh, holy woman uh, uh, sage and who my friend had spent some time with. And I said, oh, maybe I'll do that. And she said, no, you really should do it. And I said, well. Oh. And then I found out that Mother Mira could grant you the, the whatever you wished for to come true. I said, okay, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> so I stopped over and set it up for a couple of uh, nights to have Darshan with the Mother Mira and this crowd of about a hundred and... Twenty-five, hundred and fifty people uh, each night that would be with her, and I got there. And you go into this room, and it's uh, it, there's not a dharma talk. She just comes in after a while, sits down in silence, uh, doesn't even have to say a word. Pretty good gig, <laughs> uh, but when you're that high, it's you can get, you can do it. And one by one, people would come up. In front of her, there was like a little on deck circle, when, and then then the next person goes, and then you go and um, and then you look into each other's eyes for first you oh you put your head down and she does something on your neck. It was explained to me untying karmic knots or i don 't know how it worked or whatever and then you look into each other's eyes for a little while, and then after a while she and closes her eyes, and that's the end of the darshan, and then, then you go on. So there I was, and I thought, well, gosh, if she's going to grant me whatever I wish, what do I really want? It really made me think. This is one of those times I didn't want to be first in line. I, I wanted to take my time here, and I thought, well, let's see. Mm, Do I want mm, another experience? Well, no, they all come and go. Do I want a thing? No, they they all come and go too. It gets old. What do I really want? What's going to inspire me so that it will really fulfill my heart's desire? And I thought, and I thought, and, and finally after some time I got clear, And I went up, and I don't know if she has magic powers or not, but focusing so intently on my heart's desire in that heightened um, situation, it kind of etched my deepest longing right into my heart, which I say before I give a talk, before I meet with, with people, and it's there in me, um, so deeply connected, and all I have to do is remember it, and, and um, people say, so what'd you wish for at all, you know, so basically, it was just to have a, 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 come as, with as much purity of heart and love as I could to serve, um, to serve others and serve the Dharma. Now, I ask you, if you were in my position, what would it be? And again, I invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. And suppose you were around somebody who, some genie or magical being or a deeply powerful presence that could grant you what would truly fulfill your heart's desire and give you a, an inspiring depth of happiness and well-being. And if you didn't say it, you just take your chances, but if you got connected with it, then the universe could support you and respond. What would you wish for? Again, you might use a few words that help you connect with that wider intention and let it inspire you so that your practice is not just for your own welfare, but as a gift to the world. Okay, you can can open your eyes if you'd like. So that is the beginning of the process, getting in touch with the intention to be happy and to have it as an offering so that others benefit as well. The second in this process, the second step in this process, and just as the Buddha taught, once you have an intention, then you want to be cultivating the things that help bring that intention about. And so the second step is mindfulness, which I call the basic tool of a joyful life. The Buddha, in the discourse upon which this meditation is based, the Satipatthana Sutta, says there is one most direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, grief, Despair, end pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. That is the cultivation of mindfulness. That's a lot to come from one particular quality of mind. And it was one of his extraordinary uh, deep uh, revelations that. If one knows how to pay attention with a kind heart and see things clearly, it will bring about all the things that we want. Because mindfulness is the one mental factor. In Buddhist psychology, there are 52 mental factors. It's kind of like the deck you're dealt with. Mindfulness, and some of them are unwholesome, like we were talking about before, and some of them are wholesome, some are neither wholesome nor unwholesome. Mindfulness of all of those mental factors has the unique property of weakening all the unwholesome states and strengthening all the wholesome ones. The, 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 one, the only one that does that, that's why you said there is one direct way to do all of that. those beautiful things. In the moment that you're mindful, you're not cultivating greed or aversion or confusion, and you're cultivating non-greed or generosity, non-hatred or kindness, non-delusion or clarity, and those are the, the seeds of, of well-being and happiness. So every single moment that you're mindful, you are weakening unwholesome states and strengthening wholesome states. As an example of how mindfulness works, um, a very simple exercise, just put your hand out in front of you right now. And now move it slowly back and forth. Now close your eyes as you do this and put all your attention on feeling the movement. Right now, is there any worry? Any fear? Any yesterday? Just feel the movement. Any tomorrow? You're just feeling the movement. Okay, you can open your eyes. Congratulations, you were just mindful. And in that moment, did you need to add something on to make it a better moment? No, it's just feeling the movement. Did you need to take it away, anything away? Say, oh, this would be so much better if I, whatever, didn't have... No, it was just fine, just as it is. And there was a balance of mind that was uncomplicated, connected, and free of confusion. That same attitude of mindfulness can be experienced whether you're feeling the breath or hearing a sound or feeling a sensation or noticing an emotion or noticing thoughts. Even if it's an unpleasant moment or a pleasant moment, we can have that same interest that says, oh, this is what's happening right now. And amazingly, it begins to open up the heart. Not only does it cultivate wholesome states, but when you are having a wholesome state that is, has arisen, as I tried to communicate last night, if you are in the middle of a wholesome state, and then you bring mindfulness to that experience, it amplifies, it increases the wholesome state. Not because you're trying to make anything happen, just because you're interested. Oh, and this is what calm is like. This is what gratitude is like. This is what love is like. But one of the things for the purposes of our practice that's important to know is that mindfulness interrupts negative thoughts. And I wanted to share with you a, a great anecdote from uh, from the Joy Course um, that um, describes this well. <clears throat> this is from... Um, Sylvia Borstein, many of you know, who's a wonderful teacher and uh, beloved uh, spirit rock teacher. And she came to the the course and was talking about how mindfulness works in a very practical, down-to-earth way. And she says, um, she describes one evening uh, she was staying in New York and she'd arranged to meet a friend uh, for... Uh, for a theater performance, and she decided to take the bus to get to the theater. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying, Oh, I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, as I'm walking, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking I should have taken a cab. Now, Sylvia has been meditating for many years, but she's also a fretter by confession. And uh, so it was easy to see that reaction, that habit, uh, come, uh, come up. So she continues her story, and she describes running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. And then she says, All of a sudden, I have the thought... What am I doing? Oh, I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. The moment at which my mind says, oh, Sylvia dear, you're grumbling. The lens switches and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway, in the middle of winter, in high heels. That is far out. That is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud, and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. That's how mindfulness works. Instead of, oh, what kind of a jerk are, are you? And, oh, you should uh, just... Oh, freaking out. That's what's happening here. Oh, you're grumbling. It's okay, dear. That's where that kind awareness makes such a difference. So the moment that you're mindful, you are interrupting that whole story and get a little bit of space and can have some humor and have some perspective and can hold what's happening without taking it personally. So this is one of the miracles of mindfulness. And as we go through our uh, days together, again, the encouragement is when there... Any time, any moment that you're mindful, you are setting up the conditions for true well-being. But particularly when you are in a moment of well-being to bring some mindfulness to that landscape and say oh this is what this feels like how good this feels then you're amplifying it and deepening the um the neural pathways rick hansen uh, who some of you know who's a a a friend and teaches here at spirit rock and a neuroscience expert he has a, a little formula he says he says, uh, he calls it, and there's so much research on how mindfulness works, that's why there's a mindfulness explosion now. Um, mindfulness has been shown to have so many different physiological and um, psychological effects. But he says, if you can um, pay attention to a wholesome state, mindfulness is like a, a spotlight and a vacuum and it sculpts your neural pathways. So his formula is if you can tune into a wholesome state for 15 seconds. He used to say 30 seconds, but now he's, he's brought it down you know, for, the, uh, for those impatient uh, practitioners. Uh, and he said this also works. Um, it's been shown to work. 15 seconds of well-being... If you can do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it, okay? If you do that six times in a day over a two-week period, you will notice a genuine increase in your level of well-being. Both because you're starting to develop neural pathways of well-being And you're also starting to get into the habit of looking for the good. So here we are. We have five days to really go for it. It's not the worst assignment in the world. Anytime you're feeling true well-being, to just take it in. Let it register. Let yourself feel it. Mmm, this is what it feels like. For instance, as a, uh, an example, okay, bring to mind, close your eyes, and bring to mind someone that you have a really warm connection with and just uh, send them some loving thoughts. You might imagine them right in front of you, smiling back. Oh, thanks for picking me. And just send them some thoughts. Oh, May you really be happy and just know how much I appreciate and love you. And you might imagine them sending that right back to you. May you be happy too. Feel my love. And now, let your awareness just relax in that feeling of well-wishing, of loving-kindness. Just Feel the landscape inside. Oh, this is what it feels like. To just wish someone well. And let yourself enjoy it. Hmm. Okay, you can open your eyes. Get the idea? You don't have to do anything extraordinary. Just, oh, this is a good moment. Hmm, oh yeah. You don't need to grasp it. You don't need to say, oh, I hope this never goes away. Just, oh, let me just savor this moment. And that's what we're doing here and what we'll be doing over the course of these days. Again, opening up to the challenges, the difficult that's certainly going to be, Part of the process, but also knowing that you can be here for all the goodness in your life, inside and outside. So I'll I'll close with a a favorite passage uh, of mine from the Tibetan uh, Shanti Deva, the Tibetan teaching from the Guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Mm. Just, this is the miracle of awakening, what we're doing here in every moment of mindfulness. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. This is the feast that we're giving to each other and partaking in. Just the miracle of awakening, rising in our consciousness. Every moment that we're mindful, every moment that we have an intention to bring about uh, the best in us and open up to life just as it is. So let's take a moment and just uh, let go of the words. Thank you for your attention, and we'll take a um, walking period, um, a little over twenty minutes, and we'll come back for one last sitting, and uh, um, which will be a probably a shorter sitting this first night, and uh, maybe uh, tuck you in with a little uh, another little story. So enjoy your walk outside, and see you in a little while.